You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say... Yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. about the early L.A. punk scene. What is it? I like their style. <laughs> yeah, of course. They got great style. You know, they, they dress, like, especially the punks, they dress all punk and everything. And it's kind of similar to England or, or to New York. But instead, like, they decided, like, how about bright, beautiful colors? <laughs> they were, de- yeah, the, the day glow. They went day glow, man. They went, like, <laughs> full bright, except for kind of the band that we're talking about today. Well, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's that, That's a little bit, that's a little bit different. That's kind of in the middle, I guess. But I just, I, I don't know. I just like the fact that it's like, if we're going to have safety pins, we're going to make them bright blue. <laughs> you know, like if, if we're going to we're gonna do it our way. Yeah. And I enjoy that about uh, about the West Coast. The L.A. scene is very much them doing it their way. <laughs> yeah. How they wanted to do it, how they wanted to look. Yeah, they, they absolutely, they, they were out in the fucking desert. Don't forget, L.A. is the desert. Yes, that's why it kind of took them a while to hear about all this. It didn't take too long. They weren't too late on this, mm-hmm. but they were, yes, a, maybe about a year. They, they were. It, a, there's lots of traffic. They were a bit. It takes a, a while to get there. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, the 405. That's why punk got <laughs> late to L.A. Until 1977, which is what we're going to talk about today. Welcome to No Dogs in Space, everybody. I'm Marcus Parks. I'm Carolina Hidalgo. This is it. Yeah. It's the 10th band of the series. I know. So we were going to make this a mini episode. Yeah. <laughs> and then. Yeah. yeah. I mean, originally we picked an entirely different band for our final series this season. But as we looked into today's band more and more for the mini episode that we promised at the end of our Joy Division series, we realized that this group really is the most fitting end for season one. It really is. See, this season, we focused on bands who have had an impact, whose influence reached decades beyond their most active periods into countless other avenues of art and culture beyond the confines of the punk genre. However, 
We've also focused on bands with a recorded body of work, whether it be bands like The Slits and Suicide, who only have a couple of classic albums to their name, or bands like The Ramones and The Damned, who had five or six extraordinary releases amidst a discography of over a dozen. That was also very important to make sure that we're not telling the same story over and over again. Yes. I mean, this is something we talked about since when we started The Stooges, and I, I remember talking to you, Marcus, and being like, am I going to have to tell like about another heroin story? story over and over again every single week and that's when we made the promise to each other that every band's gonna they're gonna be very different in a certain way even if even they're all coming together absolutely we can only tell so many stories about vans (laughs) well outside of recorded albums however is another let's say genre of punk although genre doesn't really do it justice it's more of a different approach a sideways entrance into the culture what we're talking about is performative punk. But the frustrating thing about performative punk is that it very rarely translated to record. Most of the time it was experimental and highly confrontational, which is an experience one had to go out and see live in person to enjoy and appreciate. And although suicide could definitely be placed in that category, suicide still managed to translate their art into two phenomenal albums because they were lucky enough to find the right label and the right producer to help them. The band we're going to be talking about in our last series this season, though, did not. They never recorded an album, and the only recordings we have of them as of the recording of this episode are all demos and live recordings. But going off what little we have, it's almost positive that this band could have and would have transcended their performative roots. Had their career taken a left turn into the studio instead of a right into performance, your favorite band might have been The Screamers. Let's go. Uh, yeah, uh, now forever, forever. <laughs> anytime so- someone says "let's go," I'm gonna say "vertigo." I'm just, I'm just gonna do that. Anytime, help it. anytime someone says "oh no," just go "vertigo." Yeah, it'll uh-huh. make you feel good, no matter what's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that song's a fucking earworm. God, it's it's been stuck in my head for weeks and weeks. It just won't stop. I'm walking down the street. It's just "let's go, vertigo," and then it's "mira, mira caloca." That just fucking ah, <laughs> uh, it won't stop. Before we get into the full story, though, let's acknowledge our two main sources. The first is an article called You Better Shut Up and Listen 
by David Jones, published by BYNWR.com, while the other is a two-part article on lead singer Tomata Duplenty, written for JiveTimeRecords.com. Both are obviously written with a lot of love for the music and the performers, and both are well worth reading in full. Yeah, and we also used uh, several chapters from Under the Big Black Sun by John Doe and Tom Sevilla and Friends because it's a collection of essays from the people in the L.A. punk scene who lived it. Mm -hmm. And also uh, we got The Neutron Bomb by Mark Spitz and Brendan Mullen. And uh, you know what was very helpful was uh, synthpunk.org. Yes. Oh, and uh, Slash and Search and Destroy fanzines. Uh, slash, if uh, it's a very easy Google. You can just find every single issue that they ever put out uh, online free, free for download. I did it the other day. It was so easy. It's super cool that Slash decided like, no, this is something that everybody needs to read. We don't have enough money to republish this stuff. Fucking just put it all online. Yeah. I mean, well, they do have, they did put out like a photo album, like with a lot of stuff with Slash in it, of course. But yeah, you could just go and, and read all the articles there. It's actually really, really interesting. It's a treasure trove. Yeah. Now, the Screamers were, first and foremost, a Los Angeles band, but they also made their marks in New York, San Francisco, and Seattle which is part of what makes their story so fascinating. They were like the punk version of Mary Poppins. <laughs> they would come down wherever the wind would blow. They would just change a lot of people's lives and be like, my job here is done. And then they'd go sit on a cloud. It was, it's cool. It's very cool. Yeah. They even managed to influence the UK scene without ever going to the UK. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, And they make it sound easy. Yeah. It's also just like, yeah, we happen to be there. Whatever. <laughs> the Screamers were among the first generation of punk musicians in America. But seeing as how punk was so new, the rules that later applied to what punk is or isn't did not yet exist. Supremely ironic rules, by the way, that to this day stifle artistic creativity and passion. Oh, yeah, right. Like, what is punk? Like, uh, you know, we, yes. we, we do suicide series and they're like, well, that's not punk. It's like, well, yes, it is. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I mean, uh, a lot of people do agree with us. Jello, Biafra, Henry Rollins. Actually, it's more like we agree with them. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, they're the ones. They're, well, they're much better than us. Well, we <laughs> had the opinions and then researched them and researched what Jello, Biafra and Henry Rollins uh, said and then found that we have the same, we share opinions yes. with them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the Screamers, yeah, of course, like there's so many fucking rules and placed on it. And even like Joy Division, remember Joy Division had the role. It's like a punk band is a guitarist, a bassist, a singer, and a drummer. And that's it. <laughs> but the Screamers had no guitars at any point in their history and instead chose two synthesizers that gave them a sound like no other band at the time. And frankly, no other band since. Here's another demo. Yeah. 
songs, Matter Dolores. Mm-hmm. I'm going to let you know what each one of these songs is called so you can look them up yourself. Yeah, so, cause, yes. You know, because usually we do a Spotify playlist of uh, every single episode. And we're still going to do that for uh, this episode, but there's not going to be any screamers on there. Uh, because, you know, they've never officially released anything, at least... As far as 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 of the recording of this Coming episode. Soon. Coming soon. Yes. yes. <laughs> but yeah, all of this stuff is available on uh, YouTube and there's, you know, a ton of different versions of every single one of them. Uh, but yeah, you can hell sift through them yourself. It'll be a fun weekend project. Now, the driving force behind the screamers, at least performatively, was frontman David Xavier Harrington, who would soon be known both professionally and personally as Tomato Duplenty. Yeah, Tomato was his nickname since he was a baby. Actually, and, his family called him that. Yeah, and it's Tomato, not Tomata. Yeah, Tomato, <laughs> like the month of May. Tomato. Although he'll go by anything, just kind of how I go by Carolina yeah. like 90% of the time. What are you going to do? You'll go by it, but you're not happy about it. I, I'm okay. <laughs> it's just, it's fine. I, I have a Spanish name that's very common in Latin America. When I first came to the U.S. and someone said Carolina, I was like, oh, you poor thing. Not realizing for 20 years that that was going to happen. <laughs> every day but anyway tomato tomato he, he that was his family his family's nickname to him and uh you know that's what his parents and his sisters would call him and it's just stuck for the rest of his life yeah. and the uh, duplenty part he, well he just made up himself yeah which you know it sounds cool tomato duplenty so du- tomato duplenty he was born may 28th 1948 and spent the first 10 years of his life in and i've never heard of this place before broad channel queens because <laughs> broad I'm, I'm from Queens, you know, yeah. Queens baby. Yeah. But uh, Broad Channel is like, it's this tiny, tiny little slither of a place, right? Like uh, between JFK Airport and Rockaway Beach in New York. Ooh, never, a- <laughs> never been. I've been to both. Yeah, of course we've been to both. Yeah. But never in the middle. Yeah, lived in this city for 15 years, both of us, and, and have no fucking clue. Never heard of Broad Channel. Yes, but that 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 is where he's from. Mm-hmm. At least we got a notable person from somewhere from Broad Channel, Queens. <laughs> and when he turned 10, Tomato and his family, they moved to California, actually. They moved just east of LA to Montebello. And, you know, it was, he, he had a pretty good childhood. He doesn't really talk about it very much, but when he turned about 15, 16 years old that's when he started hitchhiking all over the country you know because he, he enjoyed the hippie lifestyle I mean that's around that time was it was very popular to go hitchhiking and go check out festivals and go just hang out wander around not think too much about the future and just just go with the flow and that was totally tomato yeah completely that that was him like he that's something we'll learn about with Tomato is that he had this like very sweet disposition. Like he was very, he would say things like, gee willikers, <laughs> you know, like, hiya, I'm Tomato. Yeah, that you was know. his catchphrase. I love it. You know, he's, you know, you ask him how he's doing. He's like, I'm swell. Like, it's like a, like an Ed Wood kind of thing. Yeah. That I, I, it's really great. It's very sweet. And, and, you know, he just got along well with everybody and enjoyed bouncing around and, and just seeing what's out there. Mm-hmm. So that's that's what he was going to do for the rest of his life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he's one of those guys where like you listen to the music and you're like, "Wow, that sounds really angry." And then you hear about him it's like, "Oh, he was the most well-adjusted, sweetest guy we've <laughs> ever met." Like he's just uh, just fucking great. And he he really was that person. Now, once Tomato reached San Francisco in 1968, he joined an early incarnation of the drag theater group The Coquettes, who were described in the Jive Time Records article as a psychedelic genderfuck troupe, which is a description I cannot argue with. It makes perfect sense. It really does. Founded in the late 60s, The Coquettes, as we said before, claimed to have both introduced Iggy Pop to heroin and, 
to have inspired David Bowie to blossom from a folky acoustic act to the glam god he eventually became. They made some pretty wild claims. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they were pretty wild themselves. They were insanely wild. I mean, in other words, the Cockettes, like other counterculture figures like Aleister Crowley, were one of the secret authors of the second half of the 20th century and beyond. The first out and proud gender benders who burned bright, hard, and fast. Among other productions, the Cockettes performed shows they wrote themselves, like Pearls Over Shanghai, Hot Greeks, and Journey to the Center of Uranus. Oh, I get that one. <laughs> In uh, one performance of Journey to the Center of Uranus, uh, sometime Cockette and drag legend Divine of John Waters fame sang the lyric, A crab on your anus means you're loved, while dressed as a lobster. <laughs> well... Yes. We're not going to argue with you, Divine. We'll never argue with you. We'll never argue with Divine. The Cockettes also produced a movie called Trisha's Wedding. Well, quote unquote movie in which Screamer's frontman Tomato Duplenty played the role of Hazel the Maid. Yeah, this is the time where Tomato Duplenty is in the Cockettes and they're doing their shows and he has a small part in the movie. Uh <laughs> Okay, so I got to see a big chunk of this movie because you can actually rent it online. Yeah. And so it's 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 based on Trisha Nixon's wedding. Trisha Nixon being the daughter of then President Richard Nixon. She married Edward Cox in 1971 in the Rose Garden of the White House. Mm -hmm. It was a, a White House wedding. And they had a whole televised thing uh, that, that I also watched. Like it was some sort of fucking royal wedding. Oh, Nixon's daughter's getting married. It was a big, there was lots of interviews. They're showing like all the China she was going to get. <laughs> it was it was very much a very country club, uh, upper white class, very like, uh, you know, like the 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 preppy guys in Animal House or any 70s, 80s movies. Oh, say. That guy? All the bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> that was them. That was totally them. I mean, like, yeah. she's being interviewed. like, I do think Edward is more intelligent than I am. <laughs> and that is a direct quote, by the way. Oh, Jesus. And so the Cockheads decided to make their own version of the TV special of the wedding. You know, and all the characters dressed in drag, of course. They were all in drag. Sometimes just still with their beards on though, yeah. which is even more fun and playing the roles of famous people like Jackie O, Mamie Eisenhower. Well, Mamie Eisenhower was the best one though. Phyllis Diller and even the Pope made an appearance. Oh. Yeah. And at this wedding, right, this wedding in the in the Cockettes movie, Eartha Kitt dumps a bottle of LSD into the punch bowl, which eventually leads to everyone drinking it, getting high on LSD, and getting wild and engaging in some sort of sex orgy at the end. Was it Eartha Kitt? Actually Eartha Kitt? No, or no, playing no. Eartha Kitt? <laughs> it, the Pope was not there. <laughs> but Tomato Duplenty was there yeah. playing, the, playing the maid just sweeping up. It was a very, very small role, but this yeah. is just the beginning of everything, you know? And yes, the movie is not very good. It's pretty unwatchable, but, you know, as the uh, LGBTQ community in San Francisco Francisco, the, the public library there says, like, we're keeping it. It stays. <laughs> and, you know, I agree. It is a part of history you yeah. know, of performance art, of comedy, of gender bending, uh, of drag and developing a LGBTQ culture and eventually making it into the mainstream that we see today. Yeah. So that's it's that's where it started. And eventually, yes, it did get very funny. Yeah. But just <laughs> not, not yet. No, it was a big deal for a lot of guys in 1971 uh, to be out and proud and, and filming them. 
themselves. Yeah, because you know? a lot of times these shows would get shut down or they'd get arrested, but mm-hmm. instead they just made a movie. I mean, these people were not shy. <laughs> no, not not even close. No, no, no. The cockettes were, yeah, they, they were part of the reason why the world is the way it is today and all the ways that we enjoy it. it the cockettes are uh, one of the reasons why. They deserve a lot of credit. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Now, even though Tomato Duplenty's eventual stage performance with the Screamers would have little in common with the drag theatrics of the Cockettes, it was still Tomato's first lesson in production, direction, and confrontation. All three skills that would be invaluable once punk came into the picture. Right. He learned how to run a show. Yeah. That's that's perfect. Because after leaving the Cockettes, he left San Francisco and he moved to Seattle, where he'd started a new gender-bending theater troupe called Z-Wiz Kids. <laughs> ah, Z-Wiz Kids. With Z's. Yes, there's Z's <laughs> everywhere. Even the kids part has Z's, you yeah. know. And he did that with his friends, uh, uh, Gorilla Rose, Melba Toast, Rio de Janeiro, and a bunch of others. Uh, you, want, you want a whole list? <laughs> sure, let's hear them. All right, here we go. We got Benny Whiplash. <laughs> Cha-Cha Samoa, Palm Springs, Rhino Stone, Coco Ritz, Daily Flow, <laughs> Leah Vigia. I mean, there's so many that go on and on, and I, they're just, they're wonderful names. Yeah. And they do sound, it does sound really strange at first, but honestly, after a while, after like researching this for like, I don't know how long we've been doing it, um, I was just like, yeah, Gorilla Rose. Like, what <laughs> it just feels normal at the end of the day. Oh, yeah, Gorilla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember Gorilla. I'll never learn their real name. <laughs> so the Z-Wiz kids, they had a little bit of coquettes in them because remember, Tomato brought a lot of those influences that he learned from them. You know, the whole gender bending, the drag performances, and sometimes very much like street performances. Uh, they would do this out in the street, like loud and campy, like interacting with the audience or whoever was passing by. Like, as we said before, they're not shy. Mm-mm. They were very outgoing and funny and entertaining. They, they even actually their show they even brought their show to open for alice cooper once oh it was some weird ass show that they did that freaked everyone out (laughs) including alice cooper (laughs) but that's what they wanted to do they wanted to be outlandish they wanted to be wild they wanted people to remember them yeah i mean in 1972 this is 1972 right 1971 1972 alice cooper was about the weirdest fucking thing out there like he was like the craziest live show at least the act at least the act yeah (laughs) Yeah. no no no. it's like in real life it's like you guys want to go golfing but the act on stage that was the craziest fucking live show out there and for them to go and to freak out the craziest fucking guy and music that's a badge of honor like that's something you put in your pocket and take with you well, in 1972, Tomata took Ziwiz Kid's name and moved to New York with a former coquette named Fayette Hauser. There, in the Bowery, Tomata reconnected with a friend he'd made in San Francisco a couple of years previous. That friend was Arturo Vega, the designer of the famous Ramones seal. And it was Arturo who introduced Tomata to the fledgling punk rock scene before anyone had even thought to give it a name. Yeah, they were neighbors. Tomato and Arturo were neighbors. I mean, they of course, they knew each other from San Francisco, both being part of the gay scene and uh, in the gay artistic scene, actually, in a lot of ways. You know, Arturo even designed some flyers for Tomato shows that he did with Fayette Hauser that you can find online. And soon enough, like, Tomato's other friends from the Coquettes came to the city, like uh, Sweet Pam and his old friend uh, Gorilla Rose that we just talked about. And if you remember, like, from the Ramon series, we talked about the Sweet 
Pam dated Dee Dee Ramone briefly around this time, which is why Dee Dee would hang around the Bowery, which is how Dee Dee and Arturo Vega, like that's how they met, where one day, you know, Dee Dee walked into Arturo's studio loft and was like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I have a band. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, we're called the Ramones. We're really cool. We're really real tight. We're a real tight band, which was far from the truth at that time. <laughs> it was a lie. Total lie. But, you know, Arturo started hanging out with, with the Ramones, you know, and going to the very first few shows, and he brought his buddy Tomato Duplenny with him. So Tomato saw a lot of these early Ramon shows, which he really enjoyed because they were his friends and they would hang out. But he also said, like, I had to stop going after a while because it was a lot of the same. <laughs> In the beginning, yeah, it's going to be the same yeah, shit the over same. and over and over again. And always a disaster because they never knew what song they wanted to play. I don't want to do that one. I don't want to go to the bed, man. And like the five or six people sitting there watching the whole show, one of them is Tomato. <laughs> so he's getting this all, he's taking all this information in right now. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, also the Ramones did actually, early on, did open for Tomato and Fayette at CBGB's. The Ramones and Blondie. Yeah. So Back I mean, when Blondie was the, what, the stilettos? The stilettos. Yeah. 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 Like they play all on the same bill together, you know, while Tomato and Fayette, they would do their comedy act, they would do it in drag, and they would lip sync to songs uh, by Pat Suzuki. Actually, I, I <laughs> I love this one. It's like, I enjoy being a girl. Like, so much fun. I do it all day now. I can sing it all day. Let's listen to it so you can also do that. (laughs) I'm a girl, and by me, that's only great. I am proud that my silhouette is curvy, that I walk with a sweet and girlish gait, with my hips kind of swivelly and swervy. I adore being dressed in something frilly When my date comes to get me at my place Out I go with my Joe or John or Billy Like a filly who is ready for the race When I have a brand new hairdo With my eyelashes all in curls I float as the clouds on air do I enjoy being a girl I mean, come on <laughs> Put on your favorite hat <laughs> And your underwear That's it So outside of performance Tomata and Fayette ran a vintage store on Mott Street which We don't know the name of the vintage store Because they never gave it a name Why need to? Why, why? Just, just go to Mott Street And together, they also wrote a gossip column called Hollywood Spit for an adult periodical called Naked News and eventually turned it into a public access show, which I would love to fucking see. I know. I would love to see that. Unfortunately, naked. when you try Googling Naked News now, it's just... uh, the actual naked news out of Canada. It's, it's just naked women delivering the news. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. But what about tomatoes naked news? <laughs> Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am and how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. It's time to stop making excuses. 
The peace of mind you get after a colonoscopy is worth it. It's the best way to prevent and detect one of the deadliest cancers. In fact, your doctor can remove precancerous polyps during the procedure if necessary. That's right, before it even turns to cancer. No buts about it. Get a colonoscopy at 45 and follow up every 10 years or as recommended by your doctor. Find a location or schedule now at avera.org colon. But just as punk was about to become a thing in New York, Tomata, who was much more interested in performance than making the scene in the city, left and moved back to Seattle in 1975. There, he started a band called the Tupperwares with a local musician named Rio de Janeiro and an old friend from the Wiz Kids. The old friend's drag name was Melba Toast, but that would soon be changed to Tommy Gear. Good change. <laughs> good, good change. I like it. Used to be shithouse. Yes. <laughs> Interestingly, another member of the Tupperwares was a teenaged Eldon Hoke, who would eventually be known as the notorious... El Duce, lead singer of The Mentors. Remember Golden Showers? We talked about it during the PMRC thing mm -hmm. in the Dead Kennedy series. Yep. El Duce would also later be accused by conspiracy wags of murdering Kurt Cobain at the behest of Courtney Love. And he appeared on Jerry Springer just before being killed by a train. It's a Mad Libs of, <laughs> of a very interesting life. Let's just... <laughs> Who am I to judge? Who are we to judge? No yes. one. We're no one. <laughs> so, yes, the Tupperware show. Now, their first show was at the Moore Theater in 1976. This is in January. This is at the very beginning. And they played, you're not going to believe it, uh, the premiere of John Waters' movie, Pink Flamingos. Add it to the list. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Pink Flamingos had already, John Waters has been, had been already been taking this out on the road and, yeah. and premiering it, but this was the Seattle premiere. Mm -hmm. And who else better than to get the Tupperwares to do it? I mean, to me, already an ex-coquette, John Waters knowing, I mean, they're all linked together. They all know each other. Obviously, John Waters with Divine and, and vice versa. Yeah. So this is all a group that they all know each other. It's like, yeah, let's bring on the Tupperwares. And uh, in this way, now it's not necessarily like a theatrical troupe as much this time as you know as opposed to let's say Z Wiz kids mm -hmm. or the Coquettes. Now they're kind of getting more halfway into a band. Yeah, they're starting to move closer to music yeah. and, and away from just simply putting on doing sketches. Yeah, doing comedy acts. Yeah, right? comedy acts and sketches. Yeah. And, and this is perfect. I mean it's John Waters. He's the most punk filmmaker to ever fucking exist. Yes. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah. DIY or die, motherfuckers. Yeah. And so it's the three of them, you know, Tomata, uh, Tommy Gear, Rio de Janeiro. They're all, they're all three of them singing. Like, they take turns singing lead on certain songs while, you know, Tomato uh, sang, like, I'm Going Steady with, with Twiggy, mm -hmm. which is a very famous song. Uh, Rio did uh, Eva, Eva Braun, which is a very interesting song. <laughs> Eva Braun's great. They had other songs. Uh, and these songs, you know, we're going to hear about them later, of course. But they also had other songs, uh, like uh, that I really I really like this one although I haven't heard it I had a face full of Marianne Faithful <laughs> Marianne 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 Faithful yeah <laughs> and Penelope Tree don't do nothing for me <laughs> Marianne <laughs> that's fantastic yeah so you know this is already we're, we're in the beginnings yeah we're getting there we planted the seed yeah the, the seed is planted now even though the tupperwares didn't record anything i mean there, there's you know rio de janeiro uploaded a kind of low quality recording to youtube uh, um, yeah of them live of them live it's yeah pretty cool but it's it's hard to hear yeah it's hard it, look it up if you're interested but some of those songs that the tupperwares played 
they evolved into screamer songs. This is what Tomatoes Ode to Junk Culture, I'm Going Steady with Twiggy, eventually became. I got a face full of Marianne Faithful. That was the first line of the song. Oh, well. Yeah. I guess they kept it. Good. <laughs> Keep it. Don't lose it. Well, the thing to understand about punk in America in the 70s was that prior to the age of disco, a bar needed a band if they wanted people dancing and drinking all night long. A jukebox could only go so far. But after disco came swooping in and the much cheaper live DJ came with it, a lot of bands who could previously make money in bars and small clubs no longer had anywhere to play. That's part of why punk musicians hated disco so much. <laughs> and therefore, the DIY show became a necessity in places like Seattle. A place like, you know, a city like New York or LA or San Francisco, they had clubs. Seattle, not so much in the early days. In that city, the very first DIY show ever put together, which therefore acted as the beginning of punk rock in Seattle, involved Tomato Duplenty and the Tupperwares. Yeah, no, you're right. Back then, if you wanted to check out live music, it was cover bands or Heart. <laughs> which Heart's great. I Heart's love Heart. great. No, you're going to have a good time with Heart. <laughs> but there was practically no rock music scene at all, like you were saying. Like, Jimi Hendrix had to go to England to start a career. Yeah. He's from Seattle. <laughs> and he knew it was just no good for him. Yeah. You know, so so there was just Heart, which, could, as we said, could also be a good time. Also crazy yes. on you, yeah. Yeah, but no scene yet. There's no scene yet. Not until Tomato and his band, the Tupperwares, along with two other bands, Mice and the Telepaths, put together the first DIY punk rock show ever held in Seattle on May 1st, 1978. And they called it the TMT show. You know, obviously Tupperwares, Mice, Telepaths, TMT. It makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah. So they rented out the PA, the venue, which is uh, the Odd Fellows Temple. It was the only place they could get, really. <laughs> they charged cover, $1 per person. They did this the whole thing themselves, even the promotion. And in order to get the promotion, in order to get press and to, you know, therefore legitimize like it as a real show, they made it a benefit for the Telepathic Foundation. Not bad. Yes, which is obviously a made up name, <laughs> a made up foundation that they use probably from the telepaths. Of course. And uh, so they got lots of press and promotion for the show and, and they pulled it off. And this is really what a lot of people say is the birth of the Seattle punk scene that will 20 years later is going to explode. <laughs> Yeah, 20 years later is going to go fucking global. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and there was a lot of cool people at this show. Like, uh, was it the lead singer from The Avengers? Uh, like, she Penelope was Penelope Houston. She was friends with Tomato. Yeah. Since she was, like, 
15 years old. Another one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this was a, a huge show, you know, and the telepaths, like, listen to this shit. Like, listen, like, we, we've got a recording. I found a recording of the telepaths, uh, of course, uh, again on YouTube. But listen to this shit. Like, this is the Seattle sound in the 1970s. <laughs> Kurt Cobain and that guitar riff I don't know what the fuck to tell you I mean wow he was there from the beginning (laughs) I mean that's it is the Seattle sound that is the sound that took over the world I don't know what to do (laughs) I don't know what to do yeah that's okay that is the Seattle sound that's the Seattle sound maybe I hear the blues are calling yeah that is (laughs) (laughs) I just finished 11 seasons of Frasier in four weeks and, yeah. and no one cares well I I cared you moped around the house for a day I know it's sad <laughs> when things end now, even though the telepaths ended by 1978 members of the band eventually became Seattle's first post-punk group who along with their previous work with the telepaths helped define the Seattle sound that band was the Blackouts again this is on YouTube Absolutely. That's late 70s, early 80s. 
You know, that sound became huge later on. And two of the guys in the blackouts, I mean, they helped to define an entire genre. After the blackouts, Paul Barker and William Rieflin went to Chicago, hooked up with Al Jorgensen, and played bass and drums in ministry (laughs) on the first three ministry albums, i.e., the best ministry albums. be interested to hear how many of uh, our uh, listeners out there also first heard that song on X Games Volume 1, <laughs> which was a, it was a great compilation. It had that, it had Primus, it had all kinds of bands on it. It had Red Hot Chili Peppers. Fucking love that compilation. Wow, that's very much our age. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very much so. And by the way, that's uh, Gibby Haynes of the Butthole Surfers singing on that. Oh, very cool. Yeah. Wow. All right, so... <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I derailed the show by talking about X Games Volume 1. No, no, no. That's the thing about this whole series is it's going to be a bit of digression because Tomato, I think sometime in 1978, one out of every 20 Americans knew him personally <laughs> because he just is a... T- Attached to everyone. This is a family tree, and he's in the middle. Yes, he is. So Tomato and Tommy, they were killing it in Seattle, and it was working great, but they were quickly getting bored again. (laughs) (laughs) So they decided to get to the next step. Like, where can we go from here? Sure, we started a whole punk scene here that will eventually explode, like we talked about. But let's go do something else. (laughs) It's a silly place, you know, that kind of thing. So the next step came to them when a British friend of Tomatoes sent him a bunch of music fanzines from England that obviously talked about the sex pistols obviously because that was the the in thing at the time you know so tomato and tommy they looked at the the pictures of the sex pistols and they, they read the interviews and and all the news articles and they saw their spiky hair and and black leather jackets and thought oh so this is it this is the new thing this is punk look how it creates some sort of weird visceral response and people are calling it a danger to society this is what we need to do. Yeah. So they soon like chopped off their hair, you know, made it all spiky. They shredded their clothes and decided, okay, we're going to go punk, but we're not going to be like the Sex Pistols. But we want to be simpatico to this punk movement, this this idea of punk, and we're going to do it our own original way. So let's move to Los Angeles and see what happens. Because what do we got to lose? Yeah. I mean, and that's what it's supposed to be. One thing building on another, but doing it your own way. Always doing it your own way and fuck anybody who tells you different. So after the move to Los Angeles, the Tupperwares changed their name. Supposedly after Tomato, this is what Tomato claimed. He claimed he got a letter from, quote, the Tupperware lady. But I doubt the Tupperware brands are even a Tupperware lady. We're aware of the Tupperwares. I know. I mean, I tried to look it up and obviously there's nowhere to be found. But the one interesting thing I found out about Tupperware is that it was actually created by a man named Earl Tupper. (laughs) 
it's actually like a man's name who sold his company for like sixty million dollars and fucked off and bought an island in Costa Rica and just lived there for the rest of his days. The man's a fucking genius. <laughs> who wouldn't do that? Hell, good on Ed Tupper. Yeah. Earl. <laughs> Earl. Earl. Excuse me. Earl Tupper. <laughs> Originally, the band changed their name to Gianni Bugatti, which seems to be something they pulled at random from an Italian film. But eventually, they settled on the perfect name for Tomato Duplenty's singing style, The Screamers. What a great name. How come no one came up with that? I know. It's the perfect name. Now, the idea of The Screamers came from combining a punk aesthetic with what the Germans were doing with synthesizers. Kasami Gear had invested in an ARP Odyssey synthesizer to drive the Screamers musically. Particularly, Tommy Gear was inspired by German band Noi. Yes, we know it's <laughs> Noi. Now we know it's Noi. I apologize if we haven't spent hours discussing kraut rock in a record store. Well, I was thinking new, like Alfred B. Newman. <laughs> that's how it's spelled. So I, I, I read everything phonetically. And yes. That's, I, I've always done that forever, and I, I'm sorry. I'm going to feel stupid, but then I'm going to move on. Yeah, yes. We're, we're gonna, but yes, now we know it is Noi. So yeah. you can stop fucking sending us <laughs> tweets and emails and asking us, are you guys even trying? Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yes, and we're sorry. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and of course, besides Noi, there was also Kraftwerk. Screamers did. Yeah. And by the way, it's Fahren, Fahren, Fahren auf der Autobahn. Not because when they first, <laughs> when they released Autobahn as a single in America, everyone thought it was great because they thought he was saying fun, fun, fun on the Autobahn, but he's saying Fahren, which is drive, drive, drive. Oh, yeah. can it be fun? <laughs> <laughs> but even besides the Germans, the Screamers took inspiration from the British as well, particularly Brian Eno. Now, most of Eno's solo rock stuff up to this point was guitar and piano bass, but it's actually very easy to confuse Robert Fripp's guitar with synthesizer, particularly on the title track of Eno's best album. This is it. And it's one of my favorite songs ever.
some synth in there in that song, but you know that that fucking that main line. That's a guitar. In fact, that's why it's called the album is called Here Come the Warm Jets because that's the tone that Brian Eno wanted on that guitar part. Ah. <laughs> Has anyone already made a hot tub joke? Or should I just go home? I'll go home. You stay right here, Daryl. <laughs> that's not to say there wasn't plenty of synth in Eno's work. Previous to being a solo artist, Eno was, of course, the man in Roxy Music. From what Screamers keyboardist Tommy Gear said about Eno, the Screamers were trying to bring the same sensual human quality that Eno was bringing around the same time with his synthesizer work. You float in my new pool Deluxe and delightful Inflatable doll My role is to serve you Disposable darling Can't throw you away now Immortal and life-size My breath is inside you I'll dress you up daily And keep you till death-size Inflatable doll Lover ungrateful I blew up your body But you blew my mind I, I really respect this kind of music that you enjoy, and I and I do know I do know it's good. You know, I know it's good, but you know, once in a while, come on, give me some some credence or something. I, I this is so elite. Elite. I don't know. It's, oh. it, it's you know what it is. It just feels so. It's too good for me. I don't deserve this. I, I it's my favorite. I mean, like here come the warm jets. I've, I've mentioned at one point that it was my third favorite album of all time. It's now number two. It's good. Yeah. And I, you know, and Roxy Music, I come, that's my favorite Roxy Music song. But I guess I guess I get I get what you I'm not saying you're awful for not getting it, but goddamn I (laughs) love it. I don't I just don't get it. (laughs) I just don't get it. Well if you you respect it but don't necessarily enjoy it, then Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. It's good. I I I mean the only way I'll listen to it is if and when I make you you make me listen to it. (laughs) Well I'm I've I've at the very least I've never sat you down and be like Babe, you gotta fucking understand. You gotta get this. You gotta hear this album. I've never done that with Here Come the Warm Jets with you. That is true. That is. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't like doing that. I don't like forcing music upon people. <laughs> I'd rather like just kind of hang out in the same room and be like, oh yeah, you like this? It's pretty cool. Yeah, let me tell you more about it. But <laughs> you know, you can't. You can never force music upon people. Never ever. If they don't like it. They don't like it, and that's totally cool. So by February of 1977, the Screamers added a second keyboardist, a West Virginia native named David Brown. Then the Screamers, as opposed to other synth bands who used solely a drum machine, 
added an actual drummer named K.K. Barrett. Yeah, K.K. Barrett, he was an art student from Oklahoma who he lived with a bunch of musicians and painters at the time because, like, you know, man, it's the 60s, man. Fuck yeah, bro. Yeah. And he and his roommates, they would jam <laughs> with different instruments all the time in their college house, you know, their animal house. And actually, that was there where he taught himself how to play drums by playing Aretha Franklin's Chain of Fools on repeat for months. Oh, cool. And that's how he learned. I mean, he, he learned how to do a lot of things. Obviously, he was an artist. Uh, he, he had a lot of creative impulses. Uh, and, but I, around this time when he was leaving college, he played in a few bands until he decided to try his luck in L.A. And once he got to L.A., like he immediately started checking out live music shows like Whiskey A Go-Go. And it was actually there that he first noticed Tommy Gear and Tomato Duplenty. Actually, everyone noticed Tommy and Tomato Duplenty <laughs> where, and whenever they walked into a room because these two guys, Tomato and Tommy, they had style and this attitude that exuded like total confidence and it was just so plain cool to see. Presence. Yes. Like, like they had absolute presence in a room. Exactly. Like it was like like a record scratch kind of moment where everyone just <laughs> stops and looks at them because these guys, they would walk in wearing like wraparound sunglasses, like black spiked hair, black peg pants, you know, like the ones that are loose in the crotch and taper off at the bottom, like mm-hmm. the, like really stylish pants. Tommy in his like black motorcycle jacket and hardware store chain around his neck, <laughs> fastened by like a some sort of industrial like you know, uh, padlock thing. Mm-hmm. And, and Tomato, he'd be like wearing like some sort of like red shark skin like suit jacket and a huge wooden coat hanger shoved in the shoulders. <laughs> I mean, they were making a statement. Yeah. You know, and anyone, anyone could look stupid in that. Okay, let's, <laughs> let's just say that everyone would look stupid in that, except for Tomato and Tommy. Except these two guys. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and Tomato's hair was fucking amazing. Like he had, he spiked it straight up and he shaved off his sideburns completely like it's from the ear down completely shaved on anyone else that would look so fucking stupid but on tomato do plenty man everything that guy did fucking worked he pulled off a. if you watch one of the versions of vertigo he's wearing a bow tie and a pinstripe shirt with that haircut and we're calling it punk and (laughs) (laughs) and he looks like the coolest fucking dude in the world yes i mean remember they knew how to schmooze and how to act sophisticated because they were actually a few years older than a lot of the LA kids around that. Yeah. Remember, like they already had their lives. And while, meanwhile, these kids are still in high school and they're what, in their mid to late twenties at this point. So they, they were well-spoken. They knew how they had a lot more experience with things and which really impressed everyone around. And so KK Barrett, like he knew, like, I have to meet these guys. Yeah. So he got to talking to them and Tomato and Tommy told KK, yeah, well, we're, we're in a band. Actually, we have this band, but it's not really a band yet, you know, cause we haven't played yet or even rehearsed uh, it's just like it's just like the two of us yeah. really uh, we have someone else too we, we think we're gonna ha- we're gonna have come in we haven't rehearsed at all uh, and so KK said okay well you know what I played in a couple bands before maybe we can play together and see how it goes so the three guys exchanged numbers and addresses which led to KK Barrett meeting up with Tomato and Tommy at their house to rehearse and their house was the famous Wilton Hilton ah the Wilton Hilton yes located on obviously Wilton <laughs> and Franklin in Hollywood deep in Hollywood you know and it has a very sordid past a a very probably made up past mm-hmm. uh, there's a according to legend uh, it used to be owned by w- William Randolph Hearst it was uh, his love 
nest that he he created for uh, Marion Davis, mm. you know, the Hollywood star at the time. Scandalous. Yes, it was. And then later, uh, sometime in the 60s, the GTOs lived there, you know, girls together outrageously, a girl band from the late 60s. Remember, Pamela DeBar was in that band mm-hmm. uh, briefly. Uh, and then they moved out. Then a uh, sa- satanic cult supposedly lived there at one point. Um, it, it was supposedly haunted and mm-hmm. or cursed, haunted maybe by one of the girls from GTO who died of an overdose. I mean, she didn't even die there, but apparently she, her ghost haunted it. It's a lot of rumors. Made its way back. Yes. Yeah. And then later, the Red Hot Chili Peppers, much later, would start their band there. And now it's a three-star hotel. <laughs> or B&B, whatever you want to call it. It's still there. Also, by the way, speaking of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Carolina got me the Anthony Keaton autobiography for uh, Christmas scar tissue it's the diary of a crazy person it's so much fun it's great like it's it's like if you've ever read Robert Evans the kid stays in the picture or seen the documentary it's that same tone in fact you can read it out loud in the Robert Evans voice and it fits perfectly (laughs) which is what we did all day Christmas day yes that was a fun Christmas yeah okay anyway by the Wilton Hilton by 1977 it was a rundown dilapidated like duplex place and the rent was cheap where Tomato and Tommy lived and they lived upstairs and they threw some huge parties because it was really it was the place to be you know everyone hung out there remember Tomato knew everybody all kinds of people would come and stop by like Mary Warrenoff obviously a big part of the Annie Warhol factory scene Debbie Harry and Chris Stein from Blondie you know and also they'd have a lot of friends and like Helen Killer and Trudy Trudy who actually later married K.K. Barrett ah yes uh, Black Randy Gorilla Rose came back and hung out again Chip and Tony from the Dills the Nuns the Offs from San Francisco Penelope Houston I I can go on forever (laughs) You know, and they were known and loved and revered because the Tomato and Tommy, they were just so damn cool. The Screamers were just so cool and, and they were sophisticated and well liked by everyone. You know, they they were huge even before they even started really being a band. Yeah. You know, hell, even Kid Congo Powers, remember from the from the Cramps and mm-hmm. Gun Club? He was a huge fan and he asked them if he could move in with them at the Wilton Hilton. So he moved into a walk-in closet <laughs> and spent his time there writing up newsletters for the Screamers. You could be a band for 10 years and not even get close to this kind of attention. (laughs) They had it made and they were poised to be the next breakout stars. They really were. I mean, the Wilton Hilton is, you know, it's such an important place in the Los Angeles music scene. Like when uh, the cramps with uh, Psychedelic Jungle, the photo shoot for Psychedelic Jungle was done at the Wilton Hilton. And the Screamers were the guys at the Wilton Hilton. Now, within just a month of getting together, the Screamers recorded a five-song demo in one of the Wilton Hilton's bedrooms using a four-track recorder Barrett brought with him from Oklahoma. Recorded in April of 1977, these songs are manic, strange, and unlike anything else being recorded or played at the time. Entirely original, yet somehow fully realized. Not sloppy in any way whatsoever. This, for most sessions, is Punish or Be Damned. Nothing happened 
maybe it's just me. Maybe we've got another I want candy situation here. But that <laughs> but that uh that melody that to me, that's fucking California Uber Alice. That's oh right, you were showing me that. Like it's just you just add three more notes to that, and that's the fucking you know that's the riff for California Uber Alice. Dead Kennedys loved the screamers. The Dead Kennedys were gigantic screamers fans. Now, while the screamers were honing their skills in preparation for what would be their first show, the Los Angeles punk scene was slowly starting to coalesce around them, and among the first bands to show up were. The Weirdos. Can't beat the weirdos. No, no, they were definitely one of the first bands in the LA punk scene. That's true. Their music was great, and they had this sort of gimmick that they pulled off spectacularly. Like, they really did. Each member of the band would dress up in outlandish and sometimes, you know, very colorful outfits that they made for themselves. They each made their own thing. Like, they'd buy a ton of clothes from, like, Goodwill or, or any secondhand shop, and they would splatter paint on them or spray paint them and then put together these outfits with, like, pins and staples and tape and plastic. Like, they'd throw chains on them. Like, whatever they could find. Like, each member of the band would have a totally different look that they would make, like, their own collage, mm-hmm. so to speak. But together, they made sense. Yeah. And they made sense as a band. And not only that, but they also sounded great, too, you know? And I think a lot of the reason why they pulled off this style is because they were art students from CalArts. Yeah. Yeah, from California Institute for the Arts. (laughs) Yeah, they knew how to pull off a project. (laughs) Yes. They had many, like Dave Trout, Cliff Roman, and John Denny. You know, they would create all these performance art installations and sometimes incorporate videotape, actually. So they were also thinking about that, too, in the beginning at first. Mm -hmm. Like, one time they tried to make a movie called Dance Mania, which is actually a really cool idea. It it was going to be like a musical disaster movie about this like futuristic cult whose beliefs were like deep in the the dark ages during the Black Plague, where like these people who got sick with the plague would dance around bonfires until they died. (laughs) That's cool. So John, Dave and Cliff wrote this movie with the music and they wrote the music and the lyrics. And one of the songs, I love this. I got the plague, babe. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so in the movie, the last scene was like this big concert and the teenagers in the audience, like they start dying off as they're listening and dancing. And then eventually the bands, you know, that are playing, they start dying off one by one. And so John, Dave and Cliff, they wanted to play the band in their movie that they were writing. But then they, they decided, let's just be the band. Yeah. <laughs> let's just let's be just, a band. Let's just do this. This is great. Yes. It's kind of what happened with the nuns from San Francisco. Mm-hmm. That we talked about when we talked about the San Francisco early punk scene. The guys in the nuns were film students making a movie about a rock band, and they just decided to be that rock band. Yeah. Which is it's great. It's great. Yes. Yeah. The difference is that the weirdos ended up writing, you know, We Got the Neutron Bomb, which, which is, is one of the best punk songs of the decade. Absolutely. Yes. So the weirdos by the beginning of 1977 they were out of school and most of them were working in advertising since they were artists but mm-hmm. they needed a day job but they were also rehearsing and writing their own original music and Cliff was playing guitar Dave was the bassist and John Denny you know the lead singer he soon brought his brother Dix Denny over to be in the band as a guitarist too so that meant they didn't have a drummer but always, now, always. Yes. <laughs> Never, it's so hard to get. Oh, we're a hot commodity. But they figured, you know what? We're the weirdos. How? Let's just keep going. And and they kept rehearsing and they would go to this rehearsal space that they rented out. And at that rehearsal, actually, Peter Case, who was a singer songwriter, he uh, he was rehearsing in the same place with his band, uh, The Nerves. And he heard the weirdos music. And so he went over to them and said, hey, you guys sound pretty good. I'm putting together a show with my band, The Nerves. Want to be on the bill, too? And the weirdo said, thanks, but we don't even have a drummer. (laughs) We're just doing this for fun. And I don't even know if we should actually play a real show like this. And Peter said, don't worry. You guys are great already. You guys, you're the best band in the world. (laughs) Peter Case kept saying that. You're the best band. Because Peter was amping them up because he was desperate. He could not find anybody (laughs) to be on the show that he wanted. He was doing another DIY, putting the show together himself. Yeah. He really needed bands for this, uh, for, for this thing that he wanted to put together. You know, he actually asked the Screamers first. He started working with them, but they wanted to take control over everything. And Peter's like, well, that's too many cooks, yeah. so don't worry about it. And so he went with Zolar X, which uh, which was fun, but wasn't really punk. And Zolar X, check them out, please. Uh, Jello Biafra says nothing but nice things about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, just look them up. They're, they're kind of from leftover from the glam period. Okay. With a space alien theme <laughs> to them. Like, that's how they dress. Like, uh, they kind of... Uh, Dress a little bit like the villain, like any villain in the Venture Brothers. Oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's perfect. Google that yeah. today. <laughs> and and their music's fun. It's yeah. really fun. It's it's cool. very rock opera. Anyway, so no, that's right up your alley. So yes, exactly. So Peter Case is like, listen, Zolarex, you guys are really nice guys, but I really want to put together like a punk show. So he got the weirdos, and after failing to get the whiskey, because he was trying to get the whiskey as a venue, he decided to book his shows. Uh, at the Orpheum Theater, which never knew anything about punk music until that day. Nobody knew anything about <laughs> punk music in Los Angeles. Yeah. Like, like this is this is the beginnings. This is the first punk show in L.A. Yeah, and you know what? The shows at the Orpheum work great, except for Peter and yeah. his band, The Nerves, because you see, they weren't punk at all. Yeah, uh, they were. They you know they wore matching suits and they played like kind of 
poppy music, which was, it wasn't bad. No. Uh, but it became obvious that the crowd were more into the weirdos. So the weirdos kind of took over the shows a little bit. And eventually they got their drummer, Nikki Beat. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and then, you know, they, they kind of switched. They had a little bit of a lineup change here and there. But for the most part, that's that's how the weirdos started. Yep. It started that way. Like, it's all started at the same time that everyone is starting. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. All independently of each other. It's like, it's fucking tell me the collective unconsciousness doesn't fucking exist. <laughs> hey, mom. First things first. Thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help. And yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Shining through CIDP to me means being able to do what you want to do and not what the disease is telling you you can't do. Don't give in to the disease. It's not easy, but I'm going to do it. And like I've told people, I may have CIDP, but CIDP don't have me. Sign up at shiningthroughcidp.com to get real CIDP stories and resources. Now, around the same time that the punk scene was starting in L.A. in 1977, The Damned had been booked to play a show with television in Los Angeles. Remember, we told this in our Damned series. But as we discussed in that series, Tom Verlaine had gotten The Damned kicked off that bill after he heard about an altercation that The Damned had in New York with Patti Smith. There was no altercation. She just didn't want them in the green room. (laughs) And the dam's like, but why not? <laughs> it really was that. Like, it was yeah. just because the dam were just a bunch of idiots, but they were lovable idiots. Yeah, they were lovable idiots. And I think if through a game of telephone, it probably got back. Like, the, the dam had accosted Patty Smith because I think she was wearing a neck brace at the time. Or... She fell. Yeah. It had nothing to do with them. <laughs> but anyway, because of this, whatever Tom, Ver- Tom Verlaine decided. Fuck the damned. We're not having them on the show. We're going to do the show. We're going to do this all on our own. So the damned showed up in Los Angeles with no money, no gig, and no place to play. So it was the screamers who let the damned crash at the Wilton Hilton. And the wayward Brits were rebooked to do four shows at the Starwood four days later. Starwood being one of the uh, two main venues in the early Los Angeles punk scene. In the meantime, though, The Damned were also booked to do an in-store appearance at Bomp Records, and it just so happened that this booking occurred on the same day as the Weirdo Show at the Orpheum, the first punk show in Los Angeles. <laughs> There's so many things going on at the same time. <laughs> this is crazy. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, everyone went. Oh, t- everyone from the whole LA scene showed up to hang out at Bomp Records when they heard that The Damned were going to be there. So it was so packed there like incredibly packed that the crowd had to spill out into the streets everyone wanted to see the damned the damned were huge they they were playing the damned at every party every living room they loved it and of course the weirdos were there they were there to promote their show that night at the orphan that they were putting on with the zeros mm-hmm. now a punk band from san diego yeah so they were handing out flyers and stuff and being like hey come to the orphan tonight if you like the damn this is you know, you'll like this for sure and the germs were there and they were they showed up there wearing matching mustard yellow t-shirts with ironed on letters that said germs mm-hmm. which was a step up 
from their original band name, Sophistic Buck and the Revlon Spam Queens. <laughs> Apparently, that was too many letters for a T-shirt. <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, germs. Yeah, you got to pay by the letter. Yeah, germs was much more cost-effective. But the germs, <laughs> it was. Actually. Let's hear what those fucking assholes eventually became. Yeah, <laughs> lovable assholes. Something I shoot the clear. Chop the screen and I'll leave that ear. Sounds mad, oh, Johnny's mad. 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 We must lead. We must lead. We must lead. We must lead. Crash at the final break. And so on and so forth. (laughs) (laughs) The Germans, you know, back in 1977, there were just a bunch of teenagers hanging out thinking being in a band could be cool. Yeah. I mean, of course, this is how it all starts, right? Like, and it started with two high school friends, Jan Paul Beam, a.k.a. Bobby Pin, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Darby Crash, Mm -hmm. and Georg or George Albert Ruthenberg, a.k.a. Pat Smear, which we would know. Pat Smear's real name is George Ruthenberg? Albert. No. George, uh, or or Jorg. <laughs> they, they call him George. They call him George, yeah. But you can call him Pat Smear. Yeah, Pat Smear. Yeah, that's what he answers to today. Yeah. And Darby Crash, who, who you know, was Bobby Pin at the time, but just to make things easier, let's just call him Darby. Yeah. Yeah, him and Pat Smear, they put up a flyer looking to form a band with, and quote, it said, two untalented girls. <laughs> so those girls, he answered the ad, were Teresa Marie Ryan, a.k.a. Lorna Doom, and Belinda Carlisle, a.k.a. Dottie Danger. Yeah. Yes, so... But before they even played a show, the four of them, you know, because they were getting together and were like, okay, we're going to do this. You know, they, they'd already met before. They knew each other from the scene anyways. Belinda had to leave the band because she got mono, uh. unfortunately. And, but she was still friends with them. It was like, I'll hang out with you guys. And of course, later she would form the Go-Go's. Yeah, she did much better. One of the biggest all-female <laughs> bands of all time. So, but right now, right yeah. now it's 1977. Yeah. And the germs are Darby Crash, Pat Smear, Lorna Doom and their new drummer, Donna Rhea. Nah, oh, now that's wonderful. It's wonderful. I didn't get that until you said it out loud. It's perfect. Right. It's, <laughs> I'm just mad I didn't come yeah. up with that. <laughs> and of course, you know, Pat Smear, the Nirvana. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah he was, Foo he, Fighters. Yeah, joined as the second guitarist for Nirvana's last tour, played on Nirvana Unplugged, and then, of course, is now currently still in the Foo Fighters, uh, probably the, one of the biggest rock bands of uh, the 90s up until today. Probably the, one of the biggest rock bands of this fucking century. And right now he's in the germs. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, they were a band, but they didn't know how to play. Yeah. All they knew 
how to do was to match their t-shirts like <laughs> you know that's what they did they, they would hang around uh bump records where the damn were that's what they were doing and and according to the weirdos darby crash came up to them at bump that day and asked them in a timid voice can our band the germs play tonight <laughs> and the weirdos said sure you know they're a bunch of 17 year olds who really look super green. They look really new. Like, how bad can it be? What's the worst that can happen? Exactly. So, <laughs> it was pretty bad. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the germs, they didn't know how to play their instruments at all. Like I said before, like they they maybe had two or three rehearsals then. They just thought being in a band was a cool idea. Like they were more like saying, we're just in a band. Yeah. <laughs> but you know what? The screamers were kind of doing the same thing. A lot of people were doing the same thing. So it's it's fine. It's, a, it's how you start. Yeah, of right? course. It's how you, everybody starts. You get excited about something. Thing, and then you learn how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so the Germs were booked to play for their first gig at the Orpheum on April 16, 1977 with the Weirdos and the Zeros. And the Screamers, they came to the show to, to watch the whole show. They brought the Damned with them, with <laughs> them along with Rodney B- Bingenheimer and a lot of kids from the scene. So they they couldn't wait to see what these Germs and the Weirdos, <laughs> what, what, they're, what kind of spectacular show they were going to put on. Yeah. So the germs went on first. And oh, okay, first let me preface this by saying that they the germs uh they started drinking before hanging out earlier that day at Bop Records. <laughs> okay? Uh they were drinking a lot of uh of cheap champagne uh-huh. and taking quaaludes all all day. Oh, cheap yeah. champagne. Then they booked a show. You can when you're 17 apparently. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> then they booked the show. They went home and they kept drinking as they got ready for the show. You know, Darby even got like a bunch of like red liquor whips and spent hours tying them all over like his clothes and his arms and legs just to make it look really cool bondage style but like very sweet I guess yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then they got in the car to the Orpheum still drinking still drinking and uh, all day long and then they get there and then they go on first alright they're like a whole crate of champagne deep <laughs> and they play without knowing how to play so they obviously weren't playing any music whatsoever. No. They were just making it up as they got as they went along. Then Darby grabs a jar of peanut butter, sticks the microphone in it, and smears it all over himself. He ruins all everything. He ruins the microphone. <laughs> he ruins all the equipment. Uh, he's not really singing. He's trying to do like almost like a tribute to Iggy Pop. Yeah. But it's a very lazy, drunken one, unfortunately. <laughs> and the whole thing was just them having fun, trying to play a song. They might have played maybe a third of a song, okay? But it was literally all all just noise yeah. and it was just to the audience it was kind of funny yeah for about 10 minutes <laughs> and then yeah, that shit gets old real fast then the weirdos just kindly escorted them off stage okay like, boys oh, that, <laughs> thanks for trying good luck next time obviously they got better yeah but obviously this is their first show and then, well i mean if you see a lot of germs performances it's hit or miss. It's hit or miss. It's very hit it's or miss. It's very, very hit or miss. What movie was it that they were supposed to be in? And then... No, they were... Oh, oh, wait. You mean you're talking about Cheech and Chong? Cheech and Chong's were... up in smoke. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were also in The Decline of Western Civilization, which was... It was... It was oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez. They, um, yeah. you know, they... But yeah. And Cheech, so... yeah, Cheech and Chong's up in smoke at the very end when they do the Battle of the Bands. The Germs were supposed to be that band. They got too drunk. Got too drunk. They got too drunk. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, (laughs) you know, you know, I don't appreciate Darby Crash's um, whatever philosophical ideas. (laughs) You know, just because you're intelligent doesn't make you smart at all. (laughs) I agree, hundred percent. So the the germs, 
they they get escorted off stage at the Orpheum. Then the Zeros went on next, and they did pretty well. Yeah, they're a great band. They're yeah, they really are fun. Yeah, it was their first major gig, and from that, actually, from that gig, Greg Shaw, you know, the owner of Bump Records, he he went up to them and, and offered to record their their very first single. Which they did, got to do. So that's how they got their, their head start. That's how the zero started. <laughs> it's literally minutes yeah. <laughs> that we're doing. <laughs> then the weirdos went on and they were amazing. Even like Captain Sensible from the dam. He, he from the audience, he went on stage with them and jammed with them on one song. They, they did a cover of the seeds, Pushing Too Hard. Oh, Push Too Hard. Let's play Push Too Hard real fast. That song's fucking great. Yeah. You're pushing too hard or pushing on me. Nuggets, everyone. <laughs> now, as we said, while the damned were in Los Angeles, they were crashing at the Wilton Hilton alongside the Screamers. While staying there, the lead singer of the damned, Dave Vanian, good old Dave, he was interviewed for a yet to be released punk zine. Now, ironically, this interview with the British Dave Vanian would end up being the cover story in the first punk scene printed in Los Angeles, which would also feature a full photo spread of the Screamers. That zine was Slash. Yes, Slash. Slash said that the Screamers were the future. Yeah. They said that in their first issue. Like, they were going to be the sound of the future. And this is before the Screamers even played a gig. But Flash was... It, Flash. Flash was into them <laughs> since the beginning. All right, so Slash, they started around the same time that we see this L.A. punk scene coming together. We see the weirdos getting started, the germs. Very soon the Screamers are starting. And now Slash. Now, here, this is where we are. It all started with Steve Samioff and his girlfriend at the time, Melanie Neeson. Slash started when Steve Samioff, who was this guy just working at a local newspaper doing like the layouts, that kind of stuff, the paste-ups, uh, he read an article about this crazy new band from England called the Sex Pistols. No, it's everything. It always comes back to that. Right? And the Sex Pistols, in this article, they said that the Sex Pistols had thrown up on someone at Heathrow Airport <laughs> and it somehow made the news. <laughs> and the fact that something so stupid like that made the news really appealed to Steve. See, so 
he was like, this, there's something here. Yeah. It's some sort of fun music tabloid kind of idea. Like, I like this. So he and his girlfriend at the time, Melanie, they called up their friend, Cloud Bessie, who was writing his own reggae fanzine at the time, and told him, stop what you're doing. We got a better idea. We're going to run a new kind of music fanzine. Melanie's going to take the pictures of the bands, and you and I are going to write the articles. And bring your wife, Philomena, because we're going to need all the help we can get. Yeah. And this is the beginning of Slash. This is how they start. And now when we're talking about the start of all these bands of Slash, of the whole scene, I've if you've noticed, we're talking about them in the middle of L.A., in the middle of one of the biggest entertainment industries of the world, the biggest entertainment industry of the world. And we have not mentioned one industry person or company whatsoever. <laughs> They've done this all completely on their own. That's great. Yeah. That's why this is why this is so amazing. Yeah, this is why this is so insanely impressive that all these people are just doing this shit on their own because they want to do it because they think this is how things should be done. This is how they have fun. Like, yeah. that's, like that's how what it all comes down to is they're doing this because it's fucking fun. Now, seeing as how the Screamers were already going to be in Slash Magazine, and since the Screamers had also created a good buzz by putting up posters for non-existent shows at non-existent venues all around Los Angeles, and since the Screamers were known to be the coolest kids in town, Slash chose them to play the magazine launch. And it's with that first show that will begin the last episode of the first season of No Dogs in Space. Woo! I know. We're almost done. I know. It's so crazy that, that we're going to do part two and and then that no more punk for, for now. For now. Although for now. we did talk about punk 2.0 maybe sometime in the future. Maybe sometime in the future. But, you know, we want to take... And really, like season one, we're going to take a, a small break. Not a long one no, at all. we're going to make know. it shorter than originally thought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to do a, a small break in between uh, season one and season two or maybe season 1.5. We've got some ideas about season 1.5. Yeah. But one thing we, that we wanted to do, uh, if you guys are amenable, um, we get a ton of questions at uh, our email, nodogsinspace at gmail.com, along with all the band submissions, which are, all, which are fucking great. Thank you so much for sending those. Uh, but yeah, we wanted to do like a Q&A episode to wrap up season one. Yeah, that way we can answer any questions if you if you have them if, or whatever, notes, uh, yeah. t- criticisms, concerns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, Just send it to, uh, send your question uh, to nodogsinspace space at gmail.com uh and after we wrap up the screamers next week uh we'll come back and uh do a q a episode to to round out the season before yeah. we take a, a short break to plan out season two and and maybe we'll i mean we haven't really talked about this fully but maybe we'll play a couple songs from some bands that, yeah. that you know have, have a couple extra uh bands out there that we can uh, showcase if possible we have so many yeah so if you're a fan <laughs> or you are you're just a guy who or a girl who makes music and and you know, you record it in some way or another. I mean, it could be Spotify or Bandcamp or you have a YouTube link or anything at all. And you would like us to play it at the end of an episode or or maybe perhaps during the Q&A episode. Uh, please send it to us at nodogsinspace at gmail.com and we would love to hear it. We love to hear all kinds of different music and it's it's, it's amazing. It's amazing the, the, the kind of stuff that people have sent to us. It's it's unbelievably good. I mean, we have a list already. <laughs> yeah, we have a huge list. And our band this week for Screamers Part 1 is The Freakies. Oh, I like it. Yeah, The Freakies. And that's spelled with two E's. F-R-E-A-K-E-E-S. 
they're out of Los Angeles, of course, uh, you know, and they're also huge Screamers fans. In fact, one of them has a cat named Tomato Dukitty. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> yeah, they're they're fucking awesome. They've got a lot of great stuff on uh, on Bandcamp uh, and a lot of great stuff uh, on uh, Spotify. Uh, so we're gonna go out with a song called Sellout. Uh, this is the freakies on No Dogs in Space. And of course, if you have a band, uh, no dogs in space at gmail.com is the place to send it to. Uh, we've also got t shirts for sale uh, at lastpodcastmerch.com. If men's you, and women's. Men's and Finally, women's. They listen. <laughs> yeah, if you like our logo, we've got a specially designed one uh, for uh, a t shirt. It's Especially great. for the punk season. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what? We're not a punk oh. music podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Although it does seem like we are. It does seem like we are. We're going to be covering a lot of different shit uh, in the seasons to come because we're going to be doing the show for a long fucking time. Uh, and there's a lot of music to cover out there. Uh, so uh, thank y'all so so much for listening uh and uh, we'll talk to you uh next week yeah we'll talk to you next week for sure this time yeah yeah <laughs> for screamers part two goodbye y'all goodbye
backstage to my women and my cocaine. Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit caron.org slash lost. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. Tasks are taking forever to complete and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers, 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One. Because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.